Hello and welcome to Ocean Matters from the Bertarelli Foundation. I'm Dr Helen Cheresky. In this episode, we are getting down to business. And that's the business of investing in the ocean, in its future, as well as in the communities that rely on it. But there are all these existing financial tools out there. So how can we use them to protect the ocean without reducing it to a number on a balance sheet? And of course, it's coming up to the end of the year. So what were the big ocean successes of 2022? I spoke with Karen Sack, Executive Director of the Ocean Risk and Resilience Action Alliance, also known as Aura. Aura is a global multi-stakeholder alliance working around the world to drive investments into coastal and ocean resilience and nature. And my first question for Karen was, why finance? How will that help us protect the ocean? Well, I think the answer for me is pretty simple, really. Finance is what makes the world go round for our planet. But in reality, when it comes to the ocean and coastal resilience and natural capital, there's very little money being invested into that space. Only about 0.01% of climate finance is invested into Sustainable Development Goal 14, which is life below water. It is the least invested in Sustainable Development Goal. And what that means is when there are communities that are interested in protecting their environment, when there are coastal cities that are looking at how to reduce their exposure to risk from extreme storms or rising sea levels, when we're thinking about protecting marine areas, there simply isn't the financing from national governments to go into that. So what we try and do through Aura is bring together stakeholders from governments, from the private sector, finance and insurance, from multilateral organizations, as well as from civil society and community organizations, putting the best brains in the business really around the table to think about what are the types of financing we need so that those protections can be sustainable, so that they can be lasting for the long term for the communities that are living there and so that they can sustain themselves long into the future. It's great to hear about finance, but, you know, we tend to see finances being kind of the bad guys. You know, the money all seems to be on, on the other side sometimes in the climate debate. And so it's great to hear that there's directed effort to put money on the on the more constructive side of things. I'm interested in how financial things can help, because obviously if you've got a project, you know, you need money to run that project. And, and that's quite straightforward. But there's things like insurance. So how do things like insurance affect what happens in the ocean? So insurance, if we think about it, is all about how we protect ourselves, but even more importantly, others from exposure to risk. And so this is essentially the same thing when we're thinking about nature and we're thinking about the role of insurance. So let's think about investments into nature, for example. A coral reef or a mangrove is incredibly important in reducing harm from storm surge during extreme storms. They're like natural seawalls, really. They help reduce the impact of wave energy for the communities living behind them. So could we think about ways that we could engage the insurance sector to create insurance products for those reefs or those mangroves so that we can invest into them and make sure that our exposure to those storms, to the storm surge, is less because we've insured them. 
Or can we think about activities like illegal fishing? You know, one in five fish that are caught today are illegally caught. Now, a lot of the vessels that catch the fish that land up on our tables are insured. Um, and they're insured because of the value of the catch. So can we work with the insurance sector to ensure that those vessels and that catch is not insured? And in doing that, we can try and disincentivize the kind of illicit activity because if something happens to that vessel, if that catch is lost and it's not insured, there'll be a huge cost incurred to the people who own the vessels themselves. This question of using insurance as an incentive to disincentivize bad behavior like overfishing and illegal fishing, that's really interesting because in a way, you know, fine, these vessels are illegal. So you think, well, they might not need insurance. And yet they still have to come into contact with ports and people who supply them fuel and they still have to have a captain. And so they may well be illegal, but they're not so far outside the system that they don't need to touch it. And in a way, that's the lever. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. There are so many touch points across the system for some of these fishing vessels, for example. And one of the tools we're working on at the moment with some of our partners at Global Fishing Watch and TrigMat Tracking, and actually we beta testing it, it's called Vessel Viewer. And we're using the expertise of Global Fishing Watch and TrigMat Tracking, who spend all of their time using satellite data and and company and corporate data to analyze who owns vessels, where they've been, what type of fishing activity they're doing. And we're now working with 32 different insurers around the world to test whether this little tool, which is on an app that they can download, can provide them with the kind of information they need before they insure a vessel to understand if that vessel, one, shouldn't be insured, because it's listed on a global illegal fishing list that countries have listed it on. Two, maybe has some questionable activity in its background, so is using ports that may be associated with illegal fishing or has changed its flags numerous times. Or three, is actually a good actor and should progress to get insurance. It's a traffic light system, right? It's red, yellow, green. And that information is going to these insurers so that they can make better educated decisions. Now, what that could result in is information where, for example, some of our partners could go to ports in specific countries and say, your port keeps coming up as a risk factor in insuring these vessels. And so we would like you to please clean up your act so that we can remove it as a risk factor and encourage more vessels to come into your port or the flag of your country is coming up as a risk factor. So it's very specific. We're not expecting the insurance sector to be the world's policeman here. But what we are recognizing is that in insuring some of these vessels, the insurance sector is enabling an illicit activity and exposing themselves to reputational damage as well as liability as the European Union, the US and Japan are all putting in place regulations which say that if you are associated in some way with illegal fishing, you are liable for that. So it's a very interesting way of helping to cross-fertilize, develop a sector and take it to the next stage so that we are making sure that this illegal activity is disincentivized. 
but also using that as a way to incentivize good actors to take the next step forward. It's really interesting to hear you talk about system change, which really addresses the system problem, not just the problem in any particular corner. What about the smaller coastal communities? You know, can, insur- can this insurance help them too? Yeah, thinking about micro-insurance, so thinking about small-scale communities living in coastal areas, small-scale fishers. There are hundreds of millions of people um, working in small communities that are exposed to the elements um, every time they go out there um, on their, their small vessels. Very few of them have access to insurance. But can we use insurance and see insurance as a tool to help reduce the exposure of those small-scale fishers um, so that they don't have to go out and fish during an extreme storm event or to make up for days at sea that are lost, they don't have to go and fish in a marine protected area or in a destructive way because they're getting an insurance payout. So those are some of the things we're thinking about as how insurance can be used as a tool to help build resilience and ensure sustainable financing for the future. It's just moving on because there's so much to talk about here. But blue carbon is something we hear a lot about. And it's a phrase that sort of means different things to different people, I guess. What does it mean to you and how does it play into the financial world? Blue carbon is the sequestered or captured carbon that ocean and coastal ecosystems like mangroves, like seagrass beds and salt marshes have captured and stored sometimes over millennia, and in doing that and in drawing down that carbon and capturing it, they are securing and making sure that some of the CO2 that we are releasing into the atmosphere is not. And so the idea of blue carbon is like green carbon. It's like forests, right? Thinking about how that's captured and the potential development of a market which communities and governments, particularly developing countries and small island developing states, can use to monetize that carbon so that they could keep those areas intact, put a dollar value on that carbon, and in so doing, pay for the maintenance of those ecosystems. Now, this is very nascent. It's very new. It's also the new shiny penny at the moment that everyone is very excited about. And the challenge before us really is to think about how we can harness that market, not how it can be exploited. Now, that leads to a a question that I'm sure you get a lot, actually, which is that, you know, in the discussion of how to improve things in the world, one of them is that the solution to conservation is basically to give everything a dollar value, to say, well, to appeal to the bean counters, the people who don't care about anything other than the numbers on their profit and loss columns, you know, and to say, well, this piece of mangrove is worth this much to you. And then there's the other people who say, look, the whole problem here is that we value everything in money. That is the problem. And so if you give in to this kind of monetization of ecology, basically, first of all, it makes it sound like you can trade it off. Oh, you know, we'll have two more mangroves over there and then we'll get rid of some, you know, some seagrass over here and that's okay. But it also, there's a way of thinking that goes with it. I guess you have to work in the world of the numbers and monetizing this, but do you find any sympathy in that world for having a more holistic view of value? Or is it just, do the numbers work so you're doing your job, you just need to make the numbers shift the levers? 
No, I mean, I, I believe in the holistic view. You know, for me, it's actually very, very difficult to work in the space and think about reducing nature to a number. I was talking to someone the other day and they made the point of how if you looked at the Amazon rainforest and you looked at Amazon, the company, we know exactly how to value Amazon, the company, and people will invest in it and they will get a return from it because there's more consumerism. Whereas when it comes to the rainforest, which is way more value, much more complex, and an ecosystem that does so much for our planet, we destroy it for short-term gain. And so I think the quite dangerous path in a way that we need to walk is to think about how we can make sure that nature is valued without reducing it to a single dollar function. And this is one of the challenges actually with blue carbon, because if we look at a mangrove forest, it does so more than sequester carbon. It's nursery ground for baby fish. It's an amazing, I mean, mangroves are amazing at filtering all kinds of toxins out of the system coming from land before they get into the sea. And it's a huge resilience buffer as well. So how can we just reduce that to blue carbon? We can't and we shouldn't. And so this is part of what we need to think about as we think about valuing nature, that there are multifaceted values that nature brings, that we need to account for the social and cultural values, as well as the intrinsic values. So how do we do that then? The first thing, of course, we need to do is make sure that any corporates or any governments that we are working with are focused on getting to net zero as quickly as possible, because that is the most fundamental thing that has to happen. And then as we look at the investments that need to go into nature, we need to think about them being additional to those net zero targets. We need to think about them being durable. We need to make sure that they are transparent and that they are equitable and engaging with local communities and local actors so that those investments are taking their needs into account. It's difficult. You know, this has never been easy. And the ocean space is often more complicated because you're dealing with both historical and cultural rights and interests, but also all kinds of jurisdictional issues when it comes to whether something's part of a national jurisdiction or beyond national jurisdiction. So this isn't easy. But if we don't start to think about how we value these ecosystems, we're never going to invest the type of money we need to recover them and restore them. And if we don't do that, we are all in peril. We can trade and travel across a dead ocean, but we can't survive as humans. And that's what we need to be thinking about. So there are lots of big issues here, and it's been a big year for the ocean in lots of ways. You know, it's really pushing its way up the agenda, which is long overdue, certainly in my opinion. <laughs> what are the bits of progress you've seen this year that you're optimistic about? Well, it's always exciting, you know, when you see something you've been working at for decades, all of a sudden, you know, there's a news story on the ocean and how important it is. So, so that's exciting as a starting point. We've seen the UN Ocean Conference, which took place in June of this year in Lisbon, which was not a decision-making body, but really a jamboree, everyone kind of coming together for the first time since COVID and really focusing on what needs to happen. We've got negotiations at the UN, which are in their absolute final stage about a new high seas biodiversity agreement, 
which is critical given the extent of the high seas and the importance of protecting that biodiversity in areas beyond national jurisdiction. We'll see it in 2023. We need governments to stop honestly dithering about settling on what needs to be in that treaty. It needs to be ambitious, it needs to be robust, and it needs to be concluded after years and years and years of negotiations. We also saw this year a breakthrough at the World Trade Organization on destructive fisheries subsidies, which is very exciting, but we needed to go further. We've seen the UN Environment Assembly in March begin to talk about a new plastics treaty. That's exciting. And so this is critical given the pollution from plastic in the ocean and how that gets into the ocean. At the climate conference just last month, we saw the ocean actually for the first time be included in the actual text that came out of the conference, which sounds ridiculous, but it's always been in the preamble before. And while folks who don't know international treaties, that is irrelevant <laughs> for those of us who have worked at them, moving from the preamble into the core text is key. And the recognition of the important connection between nature and climate and adaptation and resilience and nature is really important. And then we've got discussions going on for the North Star for biodiversity at the Convention on Biological Diversity to begin to protect at least 30% of the ocean and to ensure that that is done by 2030 as a, a floor towards what E.O. Wilson has called for in terms of protecting at least 50% of land and sea globally. And these are the types of ambitious decisions that need to be made. We don't need any more science. We can see the evidence is absolutely clear. What we need as humans to do is to get behind achieving 1.5 degrees in the climate space and achieving that 30 by 30 goal in the nature space and making sure that we can finance and sustain those for local communities, for indigenous peoples, for the major cities that we live in and for people all around the world. So there is clearly a lot. If you had to pick one priority for what's coming up, I mean, you've just given us a list of loads, but if there was one thing that you think is the most urgent priority for the oceans, what would you pick? I wouldn't pick any of those, in fact, because I think all of them are critical. But I think the most urgent priority is identifying the type of funding that needs to go in to making sure that we can realise those achievements. We need to hit all of them. There's no one silver bullet in this space. This is a multifaceted problem which needs multifaceted solutions. And we've got to get money on the table, particularly for the small island developing states that are home to so much global biodiversity and are also at the front edge of receiving the brunt of climate changes today. And we've got to do it quickly. We all have to work together to really move from activating the billions to the trillions of dollars that we need to see and working to ensure that we are ensuring our future and that our planet is made whole as we do that. So is there an example of, you know, what's really happening on the ground, the difference your projects are making that you can give us? So there's so many examples, it's difficult to pick. But I think what really excites me is some of the work we do with locally led community groups that are really making a difference and focusing on their communities. So in talking about mangroves and blue carbon, I think it's important to note that, you know, we've 
We basically destroyed one fifth of the world's mangroves since 1980. And that's a big number. And we're working with a small organization in Tanzania called Aquafarms to look at how we can enhance the resilience of some of the coastal communities around Dar es Salaam by looking at sustainable sources of income from the rehabilitation of mangroves. So essentially, this is a a community-led solution focused on shifting behavior from destruction to conservation, developing potentially a carbon market, as well as setting up beekeeping within the mangroves and employing women, which generates funds that can be invested directly back into local education and clean water facilities for the community. That's exciting. It's also a model that could be potentially scaled to other communities and shared with them so that there is reinvestment into nature, there's gender empowerment within these communities, it's locally led, and the results are going into the resilience, really, of those communities, their education, their healthcare, and keeping them whole, which is just something that I find incredibly inspiring. Well, I've been interviewing people on various aspects of the ocean for very many years. I never thought beekeeping would come up in that context, (laughs) but that's brilliant. There you go. The people who are doing the beekeeping, these women or the communities, what's their reaction to all of this? The folks that we've spoken to from the community are excited to see that there is a livelihood opportunity for them, are excited to really take control of what they can do to secure their future and the future for their children and their community. And that excitement is completely palpable when we talk with community leaders, when we talk with some of the youth that are involved in this, you can see that there is a a definite and clear sense of empowerment from doing something constructive to keep their communities moving forward. And I think, if nothing else, that is something that, you know, helps me wake up every day and be excited about the work that we do. So just finally then, with all of that, how optimistic are you about our ability to actually make these changes and to be good stewards of our ocean rather than what we're doing at the moment? I always hesitate because I I know I'm going to be asked that question and it's such a difficult one to answer. But I think I would describe myself as a radical pragmatist. And that means we've got to do some very pragmatic things, but we've also got to think radically in terms of the changes that we need to see. I am excited about the opportunities and the recognition that is now being given to the best, most critical solution we have on this planet, which is hiding in plain sight, and that is investing in nature. And I think that as we see the big financial institutions, governments, our multilateral institutions recognizing the importance of nature and recognizing that rather than trying to focus on technological solutions that are expensive and haven't yet been developed, we can invest into nature. I think there's real hope for us. And I think that means we also, of course, need to give up our addiction to fossil fuels. If we can do those two things, and we know the tech exists, we know that we are able to invest and drive the regeneration of our natural planet, I think there's real hope for us. If we can't, 
we're in real trouble. So the choice is really ours. Well, let's hold on to that first idea and make it happen. And thank you so much for talking to us, Karen. It's been really interesting to hear your insight. And I hope you continue to find the optimism in all of this. So thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a delight talking with you. That was Karen Sack, Executive Director of the Ocean Risk and Resilience Action Alliance. I think it's really important to think about all of this because there's a whole system already out there that runs the world. And if we can use levers that are already built into that system to change things, we're going to get to the end result much, much quicker. And that's it for this episode. I'm Helen Chersky and Ocean Matters is a fresh air production for the Bertarelli Foundation. The producer is Izzy Clark. Follow or subscribe now for free wherever you get your podcasts.